This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kristen Srewer. You are listening to episode 83. I am so excited to introduce you to this week's guest. Mary Grove is an entrepreneur, a community builder, a mom of twins, and managing partner of Bread and Butter Ventures. In today's episode, you'll hear about Mary's remarkable career, inspired by her parents who immigrated to the U.S. from Thailand. Mary began her career at Google, working on the Google IPO, and later as the founding director of Google for Startups, leading the company's global efforts to support entrepreneurs in over 100 countries. After her time in Google, she moved on to be a partner of Revolution's Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, where she led dozens of investments in a range of sectors across the Midwest. And now she resides with her family in Minnesota as a partner of Bread and Butter Ventures. She brings a wealth of knowledge to entrepreneurs, discusses the power of business and building community, and talks about how she balances it all. It's a fantastic conversation, and I hope you leave as inspired as I was. Mary, welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Kristen. Great to be here. Really great to have you. I have followed your work for a long time from some of the work you've done in the Midwest and out in Silicon Valley and just have seen the way that you have empowered many other people and businesses and communities through your leadership and your work and thought you'd be the perfect guest for the Illuminate podcast. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. I'm very excited to to chat with you. So Mary, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you do you consider, do you call yourself an entrepreneur? You worked at Google and you've had a number of different ventures. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background? Yes. So, so definitely, you know, entrepreneurship and, and working with championing and then, you know, becoming an entrepreneur, I guess, has always been a, a part of my, my journey. And it, my story really starts with my family. So I say always that, you know, my, my first and strongest lens of entrepreneurship really came through my parents. My parents were immigrants from Thailand who, you know, to me embody that classic quintessential American dream of growing up in rural Thailand and villages without electricity and, you know, coming to the U.S. in search of uh, opportunity, really. So they raised three children here, you know, started and ran small businesses together for over 30 years. And growing up in that environment of just super scrappy, tenacious, grit that was required to to be entrepreneurial gave me such a deep respect for it. And you know, after um, I ended up in the Bay Area for college, actually, I went to went to Stanford for undergrad and grad school. And because I serendipitously was in the backyard of tech, I ended up going into tech. And that wasn't sort of part of any master plan, but was certainly a, a very fortunate path that I that I was set on. And so I spent the first 15 years of my career at Google, where 
you know, it was just an incredibly entrepreneurial culture. When I started in 2004, the company was about 2,000 people. When I left in 2018, we were over 100,000 people. And uh, just to be a part of that that journey, that absolutely exponential growth and, and all that was in that decade and a half. But really, I, I started my work on the IPO deal team the year the company went public. And it's so interesting to, to look at all the you know, the current uh, era of tech IPOs, if you will. But that experience just really made me fall in love with the company, with the mission, with what was happening on the business and product side. And so I was fortunate to spend the next six years uh, working for an amazing leader named Megan Smith in a team that was called New Business Development. So sort of a the first business partner to product and engineering teams to help bring new products to to market and into the hands of more users. And so that um, that experience brought me to many emerging markets all over the world on behalf of Google. And, you know, a common thread that we saw was, gosh, this notion of entrepreneurship as a platform, you know, if we could work with and enable students and developers and universities and accelerators in those early days um, to really, that that could be the backbone of, of economic growth and development. And so in 2011, I moved back to the Google headquarters in Mountain View and had the, the great opportunity to start what is now the Google for Startups team was then called, we called it Google for Entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, our mission was about leveraging Google's talent, Google's technology and our resources to really help startups grow and scale globally, both startups directly, but startups at the ecosystem level. And so that was the the great chapter of, you know, we grew that work to over 100 countries, deployed over $100 million of, of Alphabet's capital. And that team is still, you know, scaling the work strong today. And I'm really proud to um to have been a part of it. But that's sort of what I what I consider chapter one of my journey was growing up at Google and growing up in Silicon Valley. And then the last few years have really been the next chapter, which has been about still pursuing that same goal of how do we support entrepreneurs and startups, especially at that early stage, but just through a different part of the ecosystem, through that part, you know, that that important uh, access to capital. And so I've been working as an early stage investor for uh, the last three years and happy to to get much more into detail there. Amazing. I actually feel like maybe it's chapter three because I feel like chapter one is the story about your parents. It is. It is in many ways, you know, such a such a big piece of, of who I am. And, and really, it was such a gift to have given us at the time, you know, we worked in, in fa- the family businesses 24 seven, my parents never had a day off, you know, we never had daycare or summer camps or separation from them, we were just all in it together. Wow. And I remember, you know, at the time as a young child, I sometimes was, I was annoyed by that, frankly, right? I just wanted to be quote, unquote, normal. And as I got older, the perspective of what well, that was the greatest gift they could have given me both both our closeness as a family unit but also the uh the lessons that they indirectly mm-hmm. taught me as well and what were the fam what was the family business or the family businesses that you were involved in all types of of things in in healthcare really my parents are extremely uh holistic and into alternative medicine my dad's a chiropractor so that was one but a whole range of, you know, nutrition to um, insurance businesses to things that sort of supported that the the general realm of health, but definitely had like my dad is a 
retired chiropractor now. So we always had the family clinic as well. And, um, and it was a great perspective. You know, one of the pillars that I, I lead our health tech investing now through bread and butter ventures. And it's, it's just a really, um, kind of full circle way to think about how entrepreneurs are transforming the, the, you know, the face of, of healthcare in many industries across the board. Yeah. I mean, that's the American dream, right? Like that's, that's what you envision as the American dream. At least I do. It is. And I, I think for all the time I've been fortunate to spend, you know, in, in various parts of the world, it, it still is very humbling to be here in America for, for all the challenges that we certainly have and, you know, need to continue to be a part of addressing. It still is this massive land of opportunity where we really can uh, come from anywhere and anything, so to speak, and and really try to paint that picture that that we want to become. And so, so yes, it's definitely, you know, it's no accident that if you look at the data, the number of companies that are founded by either immigrant entrepreneurs or children of immigrants, you know, is, is very, very high. And so it's, uh, it is that sort of that chasing that American dream. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Are you first generation American or were you born in Thailand and then moved here as a child? I was born here. I was born actually in, in Davenport, Iowa, because my, I mentioned my dad's a chiropractor. One of their, my parents actually emigrated separately. My mom was a nurse and, you know, she and my dad also just incredible life story. My dad, long story short, my dad studied at the Vatican, was on the verge of becoming ordained as a Catholic priest and then left the seminary, ended up in Ohio, uh, actually Kentucky, excuse me, Covington, Kentucky, and uh, was was in chiropractic school in Davenport, which is where I was born. But I definitely consider myself uh, Asian American, and, and both parts are very strong in that, meaning I certainly am proud to be an American, but I'm also very Thai. So Thai was my first language. I didn't learn English until I was about five, ready to go into kindergarten, you know, culturally grew up very much in a Thai household. And so now it's, it's, it's very neat to think about how do we incorporate some of that, those traditions and that culture into, you know, raising our own children now. I love that. Um, my, my husband's similar first generation from Lebanon, so I can, and he's an entrepreneur himself. So I think there's probably some ties there, but actually I want to just, um, go back and acknowledge one, one thing, obviously we're in a very challenging time in our country and, um, you know, I can't begin to imagine what it feels like as an Asian American right now. Um, and how hard that is of, of what's happening in the world. And, um, just want you to know that you are supported by me and our podcast and, and so many other people. So thanks for, for sharing that about your background. Well, thank you, Kristen. Thanks for, for sharing that. And, you know, I, I have been really, really touched by the amount of, of support and the number of people who've reached out just to check in in the past week, including people I haven't spoken with or connected with in years, which is, which is really cool to see. And I, you know, it's a, it's a lot to process. It's a lot to think through. And, and I, myself, you know, I, I haven't, um, my parents definitely raised us not to, 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 to fight for justice, to stand up, to be true to who you are, but also not to feel sorry for yourself. And so I've never, you know, I hadn't, um, 
necessarily internalize a lot of the things that I hadn't experienced firsthand. But the past few weeks have definitely made me reflect on just memories of what my, you know, what my parents went through. And uh, some of my earliest memories of my mom, you know, she had a thick accent. And I remember I was probably five or six, just her getting, getting mocked or teased or made fun of. And uh, you grapple with culturally wanting to be wanting to assimilate. And I feel like the older I've gotten, the more unique I've wanted to become. And, and, and so it's, uh, it's definitely a time of reflection, but I very much appreciate the, the positive uh, words and support. Yeah. It's, we have to learn how to be human to one another. Right. And I mean, to really embrace the businesses that your parents built and, and as a result, what their children have done for our country and, how amazing is it that we live in this melting pot of so many cultures? So 100%. Yeah. 100%. Okay. I want to go back to one thing you said about assimilation, because I think this is kind of interesting. You know, your parents were very, you know, they wanted to assimilate. They wanted to be part of the norm. But then as children, you want to embrace your culture of where you're from. And I've, I've, I see that through a lot of different um, friends through my husband's family as well about how often the children of the immigrants really want to connect back with their culture. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So it was actually the reverse of that for, for me. So my parents very much wanted us to, you know, remain and oh, celebrate. Okay. And so it was me as a child who wanted to assimilate. And I felt like, you know, I grew up in, in San Diego after, after my Dad finished chiropractic school. He moved out west to California, where I grew up, and I just, you know, I didn't grow up in a very diverse town, and my school was not diverse at all, r- racially and ethnically. I mean, and so I just remember as a child, you know, my mom would pack us these delicious home cooked Asian meals, and I felt really embarrassed to eat them. I just wanted mm. peanut butter and, and jelly like everyone mm-hmm. else, and. And I got teased for it. And I, I just remember grap- grappling with that, you know, uh, those feelings of you, you just want to fit in. You want to be like everyone else. Mm-hmm. But but they they know they raised us to be strong and proud and and, uh, you know, embrace those those parts of our of our heritage. And as I got older by high school, certainly and, and certainly as an adult, it was sort of, you know, just to go back to the same simple, silly analogy, you know, in high school, all my friends wanted to taste my lunch, right? It was, it was, a, it was the novel thing. And, and so I do think that it's, it's normalizing and embracing all of the differences and the uniqueness. And my, my parents gave us all uh, my siblings and me, you know, American first names and Thai middle names. And as I got older, so my name is Mary Maloney is my middle name, my Thai name. But I remember thinking, gosh, I wish I had gone, you know, with that as my first name. And so it, it really is a beautiful part of our culture and heritage to be able to to pass that on to our to our children now. And I struggle with that. I have four year old twins. Um, you know, and my husband is a variety of European descent. So we just had St. Patrick's Day, right, where we are now creating new traditions and we've created some Thai traditions and just just trying to make sure that we preserve and, and pass it on because it is so easy to blink and, you know, and and miss that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Peanut butter and jelly or home cooked Thai food. I mean, there is no contest (laughs) there, (laughs) but I can understand the wanting to, wanting to fit in as, as children, 
you know, often do. Right. Exactly. A few years back, my husband and I did a trip. One of the places we went was Thailand. But one of our favorite memories from the trip is that we did this day-long cooking class. And, you know, you go to the market and you pick out all the fresh um, veggies and spices and um, and then we cooked like a seven course meal and it was seriously one of the most amazing meals I've ever had sounds amazing I'm up for it anytime <laughs> it was so good right <laughs> yeah okay so I want to go back and talk about your chapter one in in the Google for entrepreneur land and you know, you said you were working on a number of businesses and emerging markets. Um, what did that look like? Are there any, you know, were, was it was it primarily tech? Were you investing capital in a broader range of businesses? Do you have any businesses that just really were like left a mark on you? Sure. So two different chapters to the Google story that, that really stood out for me. The first was the chapter of, you know, being a part of the, that new business development team and the work in emerging markets. And so with that, one of the, the most powerful, I, I guess, the most powerful memories that stay in my mind, we had this project called the bottom 20 that I worked on, which was looking at the 20 least connected countries in the world from an access perspective, both mobile and web penetration. And then we sent a team of Googlers in from across the company, a cross-functional team for about a week on the ground and tried to learn and absorb as much as we can, come, come home and launch products and launch partnerships to really help fuel fuel those, um, those ecosystems forward. And so that was just a remarkable experience that so many entrepreneurs that I've met in you know, in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, uh, in Israel, all over, you know, Europe, the Middle East, Central Asia, the team did a lot of work in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I, I think that what you start to learn is that the threads that connect ecosystems and entrepreneurs are so much more similar than what divides us. And you know, one of our biggest internal mantras at Google was this notion that constraint breeds creativity, meaning we would bootstrap teams, even within a company with tremendous resources because that produced better outcomes when you had to to scrap and innovate and be lean and execute quickly. And I saw that time and time again in these emerging markets because it was an absolute necessity. It wasn't a corporate exercise, right? It was it was just life. And and so that really stood out to me. But a lot of the issues that I'm have been deeply passionate about from day one were really um inspired in that that era of my work. So looking at, you know, working specifically with female entrepreneurs, for example, always been really interested to understand what makes certain ecosystems more, um, certain environments more supportive, what are some of the best practices that we can implement anywhere in the world to really help more women succeed in entrepreneurship and have access to resources. And so that, that was chapter you know, the first part of the Google story, but through Google for entrepreneurs, now Google for startups, we had a two pronged approach to our work. The idea was, okay, I'm at, I'm at a company like Google specifically where our approach from the corporate side was unlike any other company I'd ever seen. And that's why it was such a privilege to do that work because we had this 
this budget of resources that we put forward for this work that was not tied to a PNL. It was not tied to, you know, I need to drive X conversions on sales or product or revenue. The idea was this is a long-term investment in these ecosystems and that over time, more companies being created, coming online, using the internet, that will end up fueling things like monetization for our core businesses down the road, but it's a long-term view. And so I was really proud of that approach and of our leadership team's ability, you know, to see that, that um, far, far in the distance. And so our approach was twofold. One was that we had direct programs and direct physical campuses. We have these startup campuses in seven countries, all international. And then in the U.S., we partnered with about a dozen really wonderful tech hubs on the ground in cities across the, the United States. And the idea was two, two-pronged approach. One is we do some work ourselves and directly touch, you know, 100,000 entrepreneurs a year through Google Direct. And then to really achieve scale, it's a partnership model. So we chose, you know, about about 65 organizations in the time that I was there to partner with. So we, we backed them financially to help scale their operations and programs. We brought them together as a community for various things. And that network effect of bringing together a community of leaders, so enable the the builders in, in sort of a B2B model, if you will, really enabled us to reach the next, you know, 300,000 and, and have 4x impact that we would have directly as, as Google. So that's kind of the mindset that I've always brought to to my work is how do we how do we do it in a very community oriented way? And I'm still so close to so many of those community builders, whether it's, you know, the Nest in Islamabad or uh, American Underground in Raleigh, Durham, or the Hubba in Bangkok, Thailand. Anywhere you go in the world, you can find that entrepreneurial hub on the ground more and more these days. And it's about connecting them, giving them direct resources, yes, and then connecting them with each other to help them really access their cohort of peers all around the all around the world. Hmm. That's amazing. I, I like the community-oriented perspective and probably as you've seen in some emerging some of the emerging markets that you work have worked in are working in when people have jobs right then they're then they're able to pull themselves out of poverty then they're able to disengage from violence and there's so many ways that this helps build that overall community as well absolutely you know all all boats rise when entrepreneurs succeed really and, and we've seen that you know, we, we believe that it's it's entrepreneurship entrepreneurs small businesses are the backbone of economic growth and if we can support them and there are many many ways to do that and every asset the aspect of the ecosystem has a role whether it's you know the government with regulatory policy or universities helping create you know nurture that talent to co-working spaces, accelerators, investors, of course. So it's really fun to think about the those macro themes and how they come together. Mm-hmm. And we certainly in the U.S. saw that community-oriented entrepreneurial spirit during the last year. Did you see ways in which things shifted in the wake of the pandemic um, for businesses in, in just a community support kind of way? So with 2020, it was certainly a year that I don't think, you know, any of us could have predicted on on numerous levels. We definitely saw from the entrepreneurial perspective, a lot 
you know, shift in a short period of time. And, and yes, I think, you know, governments, we saw local and state governments and the federal government, of course, with, with PPP and whatnot, mobilize resources as quickly as possible. We always wish that, you know, we, we could be doing more, but there was certainly that, that aspect of it. One trend that I saw, you know, as an investor based in the Midwest, we saw a lot of capital from the coast as well start to look inland, look inward. And we saw firms based on the coast who, you know, had never yet done a fully remote or virtual investment decision process and commitment. Then that starts to, to happen. And so I don't think that we're ever going to be- go back to being the way things were before, you know, as far as I think we're seeing more more cap- access to capital across the country. We're seeing companies in some of these core sectors uh, like health tech, like food tech, like the future of work have been transformed and in many cases have leapfrogged forward in a very short amount of time. Again, that notion of constraint breeds creativity. Mm-hmm. I think that, of course, the pharmaceutical industry, right, thinking about biotech and investing in these companies who, who've created the vaccines in record time, there, there's just a lot of appetite to invest in the future of, of innovation in some of these really critical sectors. So it's exciting. Yeah, that's really exciting. I mean, I guess we have to look for all the silver linings that we can of, of what has happened in the last year, and that certainly is one of them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so now you are leading Bread and Butter Ventures. And... Bread and Butter Ventures, yes. Yeah, okay. First, how to, tell me about the name. Sure. So Bread and Butter Ventures, we are really excited to be based here in Minneapolis, where I'm coming to you from today. So we are, you know, an early stage venture firm that invests nationally. We actually can invest outside the U.S. as well, but mainly focus on U.S. But our core thesis is that we want to leverage our, our location, our place-based advantage. So what we call the Minnesota home field advantage or what's strong in our backyard here. And so bread and butter, the bread and butter state is one of the many nicknames for our great state of Minnesota. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. It is. And so, you know, we're known for our excellence in in dairy and in flour products, among other things. But that's cheese one curds. of our names. No, that's Wisconsin, not Minnesota. But I bet you have but, good cheese curds but there, But they're too. pretty darn good here, too, <laughs> I will tell you. We get some of that cheese uh, from across the border. But so Bread and Butter Ventures, is a, one, is a nod to our name. But two, it's a nod to our verticals of focus. So we specifically focus on food tech, health tech, and enterprise software, because we believe those are the bread and butter sectors, if you will, of the modern economy. Or, you know, we know that um, the future of how we feed ourselves, how we care for one another, how we work, these are areas that, you know, we, we can just never afford to underinvest in. And so those areas map squarely to my partner, Brett, and my investing backgrounds, but also to the background of, of the backyard of what's happening in Minnesota. And so I did not realize until I moved here the absolute strength and diversity of sector of the Minnesota economy. And so we have, for example, the highest number of Fortune 500 companies per capita based here. We have these multi-trillion dollar global industries that I spoke of have these strong epicenters. So within food tech, for example, Cargill, Ecolab, General Mills, Schwann's, right? Within health tech, Mayo Clinic, United Health Group, Medtronic, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Alina. Within enterprise, generally, we have 57 companies 
headquartered in Minnesota who do north of a billion dollars in revenue each year. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to tap into these companies, partner with them, everything from, you know, potential uh, investment capital into the funds to mentorship for companies, help with due diligence as we're looking at opportunities. And then most important for introductions for commercial relationships with them. And then long-term, we hope, you know, a path to M&A and create this virtuous flywheel of exits like we've seen in, in some other cities, um, cities like Indianapolis, frankly. And, and I am really bullish on this idea that we have this opportunity to help merge and, and bring together opportunities between these, these titans of industry and then these emerging tech startups and their verticals. And so that's our thesis. We've been building this for a while. We're really excited about you know, the performance, the the connections that we're seeing happen. And this narrative that, you know, there's innovation happening between the coasts is certainly not new, but it's to be a part of it, you know, especially in, in the current environment is, is really exciting. That's awesome. So you went from Silicon Valley to Minnesota. I did. <laughs> and you might, you know, like many, many people at the time, three years ago, three and a half years ago, our friends and colleagues and some of our, you know, they probably thought we were a little bit nuts. But the, the backstory is uh, my husband and I were both at Google. He was at in the early days at YouTube and then, you know, Google um, for 12 years. I was there for 15 years and we had built this great community and, and you know, life, frankly, out in Silicon Valley that we loved. And, and we just deeply loved that chapter. My husband is from Minnesota. And so we've got this giant 75 person family across the Midwest on his side, which is, which is really special. And, you know, I spoke earlier about, about my roots and my family is super tight knit, but all of my extended family is in Thailand. And so the idea of, uh, it's those scenes that you see in the movies, right. Or these, these giant family gatherings, the idea of being close to family was really important to us. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, we were really settled and, and, loving California. And, and so in 2018, we had this combination of professional intrigue plus, plus the personal alignment where we just decided to take a sharp right turn and, and do it. And so I had been working with Steve Case for some time. Um, Steve is the, the founder of AOL, who also founded Revolution and, you know, an investment firm based in Washington, D.C., and one of Steve's main, you know, a project that he had been championing for some time was the, this concept of the rise of the rest. It's what's happening outside of the core hubs of Silicon Valley, New York, and Boston. And he began the rise of the rest bus tour in 2014. And it was the idea that let's literally take a bus across different cities in the middle of the country, bring leadership from around the coast and around the country in to see what's happening and celebrate, showcase learn about some of this innovation in these rising cities. And so through my work at Google, we had partnered together. I was on the very first leg of the very first bus tour. Uh, Steve had been championing our, our Google demo days for five years, where we showcased entrepreneurs from outside of Silicon Valley to Silicon Valley investors. And long story short, Rise of the Rest evolved into becoming a, a seed fund. And I decided to... Uh, it was the right moment to really take that that leap. And and so instead of moving to DC, I raised my hand to move to Minneapolis instead. And so uh, to actually be 
boots on the ground in the Midwest and, and tackle some of this opportunity. And so that's what brought me one of the reasons that, that, um, that brought me to Minnesota, but it was a phenomenally eye-opening experience and it's been a, a crazy and amazing last three and a half years. That's awesome. As somebody who was, I came from the East Coast to the Midwest, now in Indianapolis, um, so I can appreciate that. And similar was the connection to my husband's family. But I will say, I've had a number of what I would call dream jobs in my career. But when I was most recently going through a job transition and thinking about what would be my next dream job, being on that Rise of the Rust bus would be in the top of what what a future dream job could look like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we can, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, um, I think that is a really powerful experience, right. Of, of being able to be on the ground, experience it in a very concentrated fashion. So it's 12 hours in the ground in each city absorbing so much onto the next one. And I experienced that too. And with Google for, for entrepreneurs, the notion that, wow, you know, outside communities are looking at my community. It was kind of this, uh, this, this novel, this neat feeling, but nowadays, I mean, I think we've, we've definitely proven that the talent is universal. It's access to, to capital that that's not. And so being a part of that democratization, and that's what led me to this next chapter, right. Of, of coming to Minnesota with rise, the rest, getting to help be a part of incubating the first couple of years there, we did dozens and dozens of investments in 33 States. It was a really um, phenomenal view. And in that time, I also, the kind of the, the life pilot experiment of, of, okay, a couple of years in Minnesota, let's see, uh, really led me to have strong conviction that the, the opportunities are real. And one of the, I think the biggest way I could have an impact in this next chapter is to roll up my sleeves and actually incubate it live on the ground. And so I, in 2020, you know, transition from revolution and into bread and butter. And now I'm focused on, in, in many ways, an extension of that mission, right? But actually being one of the funds on the ground in these markets to execute against it. And it's been a real joy to see that vision start to come to fruition and the entrepreneurs that we've backed from these underserved markets. Uh, we also do invest in the coast as well, but largely, you know, 24% of our bread and butter portfolio are in Minnesota, 41% are in the Midwest, the rest are distributed across the country. It's just really, um, it's really a gift to get to work with entrepreneurs every day. Yeah. And it's just such a powerful, I mean, going back to the community building, it's so powerful. And I read also 46% of your companies are uh, founded by women. That's right. So 46% are founded by, by women. And then 63% of our companies are founded by uh, people of color. And, and so I, awesome. it, thank you. It's been, you know, we, we're definitely making strides in the right direction and we've been very intentional while of course we don't have quotas or, or things like that. This has been a longstanding thread of my work for the past two decades, right? Of how do we, how do we champion and not just champion, but actually do the work of creating a more equitable level playing field and capital is such a huge, huge component of that. And so we think that for venture capital and you know, the numbers are quite abysmal, both for female founded companies and for founders of color, 
our solutions really lie at every layer of the stack. And so for a fund manager like, you know, like Brett and me, the idea is how do we think about diversity at the LP level? So who's putting capital into our fund? How do we think about diversity at the firm level? So who are the general partners? Who's on the investment team? Who's on the team supporting the companies? You know, who's in that that position of writing the check? Then, of course, who's in the pipeline? How are we ensuring that we're generating a robust and diverse, in all senses of the word, pipeline of, of deal flow? And then once we invest in our companies, how do we help them think about equitable hiring and not just hiring, but supporting retention? Who's on your board, right? If, if we need to help source great board candidates, can we do some of that work in advance to have a deep bench of diverse board candidates to choose from. So it really is intentional. The work needs to be intentional at every layer. And there's a lot of challenges, don't get me wrong, but one of the things that we've seen on our team since Brett and I partnered, so Brett had launched um, version one of what is now Brett and Butter Ventures was his, his own solo GP fund called the Syndicate Fund. And Brett has always been, one of the many reasons I love working with him, he's always been a huge ally and champion uh, for underrepresented founders. But when we teamed up, we started to see an even more dramatic moving of the needle in terms of uh, deal flow and who's pitching us and, and who's proactively coming to knock on our doors. And so I, I believe, you know, this is, we're living proof that having a more diverse team immediately sends the signal to the market that we are open for business, that we are a firm that, uh, in which all founders or more diverse founders are welcome. That's great. I mean, what an important time to be leading that kind of intentional process and support of those companies and businesses. And I, I think that one thing that I'll just, you know, add on there is that we believe that investing in diverse teams directly leads to better financial ROI. And so, and I, you know, always extremely 100% clear when talking with, when pitching LPs for funding, for example, or talking with anyone that this is our, this is part of our strategy. This is the business strategy. This is not a siloed, yes, you know, we want, we want to do good things for the world. Uh, it really, I truly believe, and we've seen the data has proven out, right, that, that more diverse teams lead to better outcomes. And we are 100% focused on financial return. The best way to do that is to back diverse teams. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I've seen you post a couple times on social media about the Nest Collaborative, and I'm a mom, so I'm really curious to know more about what this is. Yes. So Nest Collaborative is one of our most recent investments. We just uh, partnered with with the team there in January of this year, January of 2021, and I'm just super bullish and excited about this company. Right. I also. Uh, this is a space that I've been working in and studying for quite some time of just maternal health broadly as a category. Yes, but specifically within it, you know, opportunities around telehealth. We've seen that the telehealth market has exploded in the last 18 months because of the COVID pandemic. Telehealth's not a new phenomenon by any means, but we do believe that the user adoption and just the willingness uh, has shifted in a way that fundamentally the ground has shifted in a way that will never be completely back to pre-telehealth days. And so Nest Collaborative is 
phenomenal team led by Amanda Gorman, who is a longtime pediatric nurse practitioner, and Anna Zornosa, who's a longtime Silicon Valley tech executive. And their vision is really to build this telehealth platform for maternal health, beginning first with lactation support as the first vertical. And what they've done is laid the groundwork by building these relationships with, with payers, insurance companies across the country to ensure that you know, nine and 10 moms who receive the service today pay $0 out of pocket. And for the, the new moms, it's just trying to help them better achieve their goals around breastfeeding, which is, you know, difficult in any time, but especially in a pandemic, we're able to prove that by giving people access in their homes and the comfort of their environments, maybe the ability to have their, their partner with them, supporting them has led to tremendous outcomes. And so we are excited to be investors along with a great, you know, slate of really experienced health tech, femtech investors. And so that is a company uh, to watch in my point of view. That's really cool. And now you're a mom. You said you have twins, four-year-old twins, mm-hmm. boy, girl, boy and a girl, a boy and a girl. Boy and a girl. Okay. So that must keep you very busy in addition to your very full work plate. This is true. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> especially in a pandemic. <laughs> How old are your little ones? I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Oh, wow. Exciting times. Yes. So I can't really imagine doing two at the same age at the same time. I'm already, I feel like my four-year-old and one-year-old keep us on our toes enough. <laughs> I think we're at that economies of scale. They, they, yeah. they, say, that, they say that when I, when I, uh, when they were newborns, it was so full on and overwhelming oh and, you know, all the above. But I kept seeing other parents of twins who said, no, 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 it gets, it gets so much easier, so much easier. And I said, well, when? And they said around four. And I <laughs> remember thinking, I said, four, you mean four months? You know, because they were like four weeks old at this point. I said, no, four years. <laughs> I thought, oh, man. But but it's such a joy that the bond that they have, the, oh, it is just such a joy. And now it really is. They are each other's best friend and closest companion and we're at the point now where sometimes they don't they don't want mommy and daddy to play with them and I'm like already (laughs) no but I mean I love that but as the mom you're like I don't love that but that's really sweet (laughs) it's just that their independence is you know they're in this wildly independent phase where the personalities are so different even though the environment's the same that they're in so it's it's a very interesting study yeah so how do you make it all work? I think it's about being very r- ruthless prioritization, setting some boundaries and, you know, respecting them. And, and I'm, of course, would be remiss not to say I have a phenomenal partner in my husband. And we're, we've always been a very, very, um, you know, 50-50 as a, as a team, even prior to becoming parents. But that's been a big piece of the equation is our, our, uh, commitment to tackling it as best we can. And and it's been the other, the other I would say is yes, yeah, setting those boundaries of, and I'm pretty upfront with people about what my constraints are, commitments are and why, right. I don't, I don't have a sense of, um, because I can't do that because I have kid pickup or mm-hmm. my son has X, Y, or Z, zero apologies. It's just sort of, that's my life and I'm proud of it. And that's, I think what we should be normalizing as opposed to creating this this concept of 
you know, I, I think the future of work has also shifted, certainly in industries like like tech and entrepreneurship. And so I, I do my best, <laughs> a lot of help, and also a lot of grace for myself of figuring out what's, um, you know, I, I just end up being a lot more efficient or just winging it, frankly, a lot, a lot more than, uh, than I did before. Yeah. I think boundaries are super important and because this time is, they're not going to be four ever again, right? They're not going to have that t-ball practice or, you know, whatever activity that they're doing in that phase. And, absolutely. you know, absolutely. I've thought a little bit about pandemic has certainly been quite devastating for working moms, for a lot of working moms. So many had to drop out of the workforce, which is just heartbreaking. But also, I think that there is some positive where the boundaries have become more important and everybody has a kid that's showing up into a Zoom meeting or just knowing that that you have to create some of those. So in some ways, maybe maybe there's more acceptance that will, you know, go into the future around those boundaries that working parents need to set for themselves. I agree. I agree with you that that's hopefully a silver lining is, is normalizing this notion of bringing our whole selves to everything, every aspect of our lives, and specifically in this case to, to work, and that that's not only accepted, but welcomed, right? And I, I, for me, to go back to the experience of my own childhood, too, it's also bringing them into things, bringing them into mm-hmm. things where, where it's appropriate, of course, that they understand what mommy is doing, or they can sit in on a meeting they sat in on a board meeting with me. This was in the early days of the pandemic when everything was 100% shut down mm-hmm. and just had their little iPads doing um, doing star, the Starfall app. And I just thought, well, you know, you, you have to just, not everything's going to be perfect, but they understand at a very high level what mommy and daddy do for work. And they think it's, you know, j- just like my parents in a very different environment in business. I was a part of it. I want them to also be a part of it and, and get to, see and understand but today uh it's pretty funny i was i was joking that so bread and butter is the name of our firm so violet my daughter asked me for bread and butter at dinner the other night which was not uh, offered on the table she said can i have some bread and butter mom and then she's turned to me she said also that's your work <laughs> and i, I thought after, after you know 18 years of working in tech and not being able to explain to my extended family what i actually do now now it's pretty simple it's just bread and butter Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. I love that. <laughs> Thanks. Well, Mary, thank you so much for your time today. I'm, I know you have other important meetings to get to, but I wanted to just close this out with a couple of our end of podcast questions. You are certainly illuminating in so many communities around the country and world through the work that you're doing. I would love to hear who is somebody that illuminates for you. Sure. So, I mean, so many... So many answers to that question. I'll I'll just choose one for the sake of brevity. I wanted to give a shout out to an amazing leader in Pakistan, a woman named Jahan Ara, and Jahan runs an effort there called the Nest IO. It's a incubator space for young entrepreneurs, and she has been, you know, number one in line at, at the forefront of the movement in Pakistan from my point of view of really advancing that entrepreneurial ecosystem forward. I've known her. I first met her when we 
we visited Islamabad back in uh, exactly 10 years ago, so 2011, and uh, just recently was a part of their virtual event in, in 2020. And just to see the the growth of the ecosystem, she's such a force of nature. I would encourage you to, to check out the work that, that she's doing. But I've learned a ton from her and really respect her and her approach. That's awesome. I'm excited to check her out. Do you have a book recommendation? Yes. So I just recently finished a book by a friend of mine named Adiba Barney. Adiba wrote this book. It's called When Life Gives You Cactuses, Make Margaritas. <laughs> and, and Adiba is another just really powerhouse ecosystem builder who I met when I was working at Google through Google for Startups. And she was um, actually uh, originally from, from Lebanon, and she's worked all over the world supporting entrepreneurial ecosystems. But she lives with uh, stage four metastatic breast cancer and has been very public about her her journey, her personal story, and has just used her platform to completely, you know, fundraise for, advocate for research and more resources drawn towards metastatic breast cancer specifically. And so she wrote this book, which is basically a story of her life, but also uh, you get to learn a lot about her insights from entrepreneurial communities around the world. And it just gives me such a, such a amazing sense of perspective. She's such an inspiration. So um, when life gives you cactuses, make margaritas. That is a good life philosophy. I agree. And <laughs> on the margarita front too. <laughs> That's awesome. And then my last question is, what is your message for the world? Hmm, good question. The message for the world is just, you know, continue. Entrepreneurship is, it's a privilege to have the ability to pursue your dreams. It's also a grind and a journey. So my message is, just 100% believe in yourself and just keep moving forward despite the obstacles, the no's that will come your way and try to surround yourself with, you know, people who you can trust and be open with, be authentic with, who can help support you in that journey. But my biggest message is just, you know, just keep going and just believe in yourself and know that you have extraordinary potential to achieve your dreams. Wow, thank you, Mary, for your words of wisdom, for empowering women, for helping build up communities, and for sharing your journey with us. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today, and I hope you have a wonderful week.